I wish that I could explain to you why uh, these episodes are in these places in two kings, um, but I'm not able to do that tonight uh, in such a way as to put one and two kings all together and properly account for the typology that's going on. So what we're going to do instead is I'm hoping to draw out some lessons for us from the text uh, that we can see to encourage and guide us. And the first thing, first uh, thing that I want us want us to see um, is the grace of the Lord towards these two kings. And we see it clearly because of how evil they are. And what we're doing is we're marvelling at the Lord. So here's what we open with when we learn about uh, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, that he reigns, verse 1, for 17 years, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord by following the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, and he did not turn away from them. So you remember in this portion of scripture, we're listening to Jehoahaz, who is the king of the northern kingdom. Israel and Judah have divided. Israel is in the north. Jehoahaz is now the king there. He's coming after Jehu, who we learned about last week. And you remember in the north, in the north, in that northern kingdom, Jeroboam, where that kingdom had first split and first started, he created that false religion that sort of mirrored uh, the true religion. It had some things the same, but he had the golden calves there, you remember? And they did a few other things that were different to what the Lord had given Israel to uh, as the manner in which they were to worship him. So that's what's happening in the north. But when you say that he continues to follows the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, that's what he's referring to. We've been reminded that he's committing idolatry at the... This is meant to be... um, you know, such a special, sacred thing to take your sacrifices to the temple, uh, to worship the one true God in the right way. Um, but really what they're doing in Samaria is idolatry. They've made golden calves and they're not worshipping the Lord in the right way. So this is very bad. And he's leading the whole, he's leading the nation in this sin. Which means it's not just his own life, but it's all of the lives of these people that he's leading into great sin and idolatry. And what happens, verse 3, that idolatry causes the Lord's anger to burn against Israel and for a long time he kept them under the power of Hazael king of Aram, and Ben-Hadad, his son. And what's happening is Israel's in the north, and just a little bit further north are the Syrians. 
and you can call them the Syrians or the Arameans. And Hazael is the king. And what the Lord's punishment for the people of Israel is, is to give them over into the hands of this king so that he oppresses them. That was commonly the pattern that the, of the way that the Lord would discipline or punish his people. So that, you know, they, the experience to be under their oppression is, you know, it's resulting in poverty. Uh, it's resulting in loss of all manner, all, all aspects of livelihood. Um, people would, as we've read in here about the Moabites, they would do raids. It's going to involve deaths. It's a terrible thing to be um, under the burning anger of the Lord. And this is the situation that Israel finds themselves in. One thing we can see here, before we move on, is this way that the Lord hands people over as a part of his wrath. Um, In Romans chapter 1, we read about uh, the same language of being handed over, but we're handed over to our own sins Uh, so that we're controlled and mastered by our sins, which results in the the breakdown of ourselves, our own lives and our society. So the Lord is in his burning anger. He's removing his hand of protection and allowing these other nations to come in and squeeze uh, the Israelites. But then... Um, this is where the, the, the grace of the Lord is that we see. Verse 4, Then Jehoah has sought the Lord's favour, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw how severely the king of Aram was oppressing Israel. The Lord provided a deliverer for Israel, and they escaped from the power of Aram. So the Israelites lived in their own homes as they had before. I just think that's that's something, isn't it? that so undeserving is he in his idolatry, but the Lord looks with compassion on his people when he sees the oppression that they're in and he listens to their the plight of their situation and he gives them a deliverer to rescue them. It's the same... As in the, in this chapter, as his son, Jehoash, who also found himself in a difficult situation, in verse 14, he went to Elisha. So you see that the son of Jehoahaz, whose name is Jehoash, He also was an evil king. We read that in verse 10 and verse 11. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, sorry, became king of Israel in Samaria and he reigned for 16 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He continued in them. So you see that? Two kings. The one son straight after, both walking in idolatry, and Jehoahaz sought the Lord's favour, verse 4, and then we see the Lord's grace again in the same way 
in verse 14, where Jehoash, king of Israel, went down to see Elisha and wept over him and says, my father, my father, he cried, uh, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And you might think at that point that the Lord might have said through Elisha, yes, all smashed up because the Syrians have been oppressing you and you wanted to live on your own and it's not working So, because you didn't want me, so you're not going to have me. So see you later. That's what he could have done. But he doesn't. Instead, the Lord gives Elisha a favorable message, which is get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands. And he put, he said to the king of Israel, um, when he had taken it, Elisha put his hands in the king's hands, opened the east window, he said, and he opened it, shoot, Elisha said, and he shot. And what is it? It's a favorable message. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Aram. Elisha declared, you will completely destroy the Arameans at Aphek. What's the point here? I guess I'm just seeing two kings that were idolatrous kings seeking the Lord in times of trouble who don't deserve it and the Lord being gracious and sending victory to Jehoash and raising up a deliverer during the days of Jehoaz. Because he sees the suffering of his people and he has compassion on them. And so the Lord is merciful and is gracious with his people. Now there's one little other little piece in this. Which I think strengthens it for us. And it's because in verse 23 we see that I think we can say two things. The Lord is gracious in his character. That's what he's like. That's what he does. He has mercy on... He he causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's full of mercy and he relents in destroying Nineveh. But we also see here the strength. Something, don't know exactly how to put all the pieces together, but we see something of the strength of the covenant. Because look what he says in verse 23, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So because the Lord had already bound himself to these people in giving the promise to Abraham, he was committed to doing them good. And they'd gone, this northern kingdom had gone so far off, but the Lord's covenant to them until he's completed his purposes seems to be holding them and carrying them through. And I guess I'm, and I'm going to leave you with one little puzzle for yourself. It says, to this day he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. I don't think it means to this very day right now. I think it means at least to the time of the writing of the kings. But even in the writing of the kings, we read, just in a couple of chapters, we'll get to it soon, um, there's, a, there's a big heading 
in chapter 17, Israel exiled because of sin. And we know that that's what happens. So that little verse there is a little puzzle for you to think on. That in what way was he unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence to this day? For us, we can still take away that the covenant that they were enjoying, the grace because of the Lord bound himself to them in the covenant there, how much more can we say that we have the Lord on our side in Christ, who is the seed, who is the one, the, the promised descendant of Abraham, through whom the blessing comes to the nations. And as we, that's Christ, the Lord Jesus. And as we find ourselves in him, the fulfillment of that promise, we can have confidence. How much more can we have confidence that the Lord is on our side committed to doing us good? So I think the encouragement for us would be, certainly if we find ourselves in sin, if we are exposed in our idolatry, to turn to the Lord and seek him, that he would have compassion. And in Christ, how much more can we, can we be confident that he, he already has raised up a deliverer for us? And we're in him. So I think that's uh, some encouragement in here. Straight away, we see some fascinating behavior. But it is what happens. Look at verse 6. But they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he had caused Israel to commit. They continued in them. Also, the Asherah pole remained standing in Samaria. The surprising thing about people, about ourselves, and it's a great danger that we can fall into the same thing, is that these people have experienced God's grace. They've, ex- they've known themselves oppressed. Jehoahaz has cried out for relief. It's been given to them. And the people revert back to the same sins that they were already committing beforehand. And they don't remove the Asherah pole. This is just one, another one of those instances in Scripture which teaches us this is what happens. People can, Hebrews talks about having a taste of the life of the new, co- of the new community, the covenant, new covenant community. And then turning away. Some people might call out to the Lord for some rescue, some deliverance, and then go back to the life they were living beforehand. This is the pattern of people generally. So don't be surprised if people taste grace and then turn away. That's what they've been doing for a long time. And it's a word to us that we not be like the Israelites who taste grace and once the pressure eases, we go back to the sins that we were praying for deliverance from. It's a sad thing. 
Let's go to two, two more things. Why was the man of God angry that Jehoash didn't strike the ground five or six times? And what lesson is there for us? You see, he says, he gets him to shoot the arrow out the window and he says, this is the victory arrow. And then he said, take the arrows. And the king took them. Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Aram and completely destroyed it. But now you will defeat it only three times. Saul didn't completely obey the the word of Samuel when he was told to destroy the Amalekites. He was told to wipe everything out completely. But he decided, based on his own thinking, that it was worth keeping a portion of what was meant to be destroyed because in his mind, that little portion that could have been kept, he had some good idea for it. But that wasn't what the Lord told him. The Amalekites, we can now do some some symbols. The Amalekites are like sin and idolatry. That's what they represent. They are people of sin and idolatry. And the destroying of the Amalekites and destroying of everything was meant to be a sign of complete devotion to the Lord and his holiness and the same intensity of abhorrence towards all sin and idolatry. They were supposed to be completely removed because that's how the people of Israel are supposed to enter into the land and they're to treat in, in, the, in the driving out of the people of the land. This is the picture of the Christian community or the individual getting rid of the yeast, not one little bit, not one little bit of sin, not one little bit of idolatry. And there should be no sense of, I'll just keep a tiny little portion, even if I think I've got a good idea for it. And he thought he had a good idea to worship the Lord. And I think it's the same here, same idea here. That Jehoash is supposed to be, his posture is supposed to be one of real severity with regards to the enemies of God. In in this regard, as they signify sin, idolatry, and the devil. But he's not got that seriousness. His striking of the ground three times is too symbolic of, I'm willing to defeat them, but I'm not really here to, with a, with a, with a real sense of, know these people, we we must preserve the nation. We must preserve the holiness and the purity of the nation. And we won't have a piece of it, a piece of idolatry, a piece of the leaven of the nations amongst us. So I think that's what it was that was the concern for the man of God. He's not serious enough about the holiness 
of the nation and the preservation of the worship of the Lord. And I think their message for us is the same. If, if I've read that correctly, it would be a question for us that what's our posture to sin in our own hearts? What's our posture? What, you know, how much are we, are we striking the ground three times or are we striking the ground five times with our eagerness to rid ourselves of sin and maintain, even amongst our community, faithfulness to the Lord? Last point. We have this little section here about Elisha dying and buried and the Moabite raiders coming along and they, verse 21, once while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders, so they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb. When the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. It's a strange little account in the middle here. I think it's a picture of a union with Christ. I think that's what we're being taught here. Union with Christ being that just as we're, as the man goes into the grave with Elisha and then upon touching his bones, that point of contact brings him to life. And here we've got a picture of what it means for us as Christians as we have been uh, crucified with him in baptism or buried with him in baptism as surely as we've been buried with him in baptism, so we will be raised with him uh, in the resurrection. And this is a little illustration of this in the Old Testament of of uh, what was going to happen uh, for us. And also, what's happening for us is what's happening for the nation. So the nation's going to, uh, the nation itself has a death and a resurrection, and all of that signifying uh, what's going on with ourselves and our union with Christ. And so what, what encouragement can we take away from that? I suppose, one, we can see the patterns. It's important to see those patterns in the Old Testament uh, before the coming of Christ, which gives us confidence uh, in Christ and his work. Uh, it also um, shows us that union with Christ is not something just exclusive to the New Testament, which again further strengthens our confidence. And there's cause just to be reminded of this truth that we have been united with Christ by faith, uh, that our death is not the end, uh, but we will be raised with Christ in glory, uh, as we've already sung. So that's a a beautiful truth for us. So just as a recap, what we've thought about, we've thought about uh, the grace of the Lord and calling upon him um, and how much more confidence we can have as people who are in Christ. Um, the folly of tasting grace and turning away. Um, the seriousness with regards to sin and the holiness of the Christian community. And we've been reminded of this picture of union with Christ and of resurrection life with him that we receive uh, by faith as a free gift. And that's available for anybody tonight. So we can, we can turn ourselves and turn our hearts to the Lord even tonight.